Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thank you for listening. Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and I hope everyone had a great holiday season. Uh, We took a short break here from the show, but it's good to be back with everyone. My guest today is Jared Holcomb. He is a senior research engineer at Southwest Research Institute, also known as SWERI. Uh, He has over five years of experience leading and developing EW systems for the betterment of the warfighter. Uh, He started his career by developing an EW-centric test software called Sparta, which later won an R&D 100 award in 2020. And he most recently was awarded the AOC Future 5 Award for his contributions to the EW community. Over the past few years, he's focused his attention on researching next-generation receiver architectures uh, that meet the demanding requirements of future threats. Uh, He's a really smart guy. It's really been a pleasure getting to know him over the past year here at AOC and uh, looking forward to having him on the show. Before I introduce him formally, just a few notes. The first, we are launching a new subscription package here in 2024 uh, to our podcast. So the way that this will work is that we will continue to come to you every other week, two two episodes a month, free for anybody to download on uh, any podcast player. But if you want to subscribe, we are going to be doing two additional episodes per month on the off weeks uh, for subscribers only. And subscribers can not only download those special episodes, but also participate in the recording of those episodes that happen the day before release. These subscriber episodes are going to focus mostly on current events, kind of analysis, what's going on in the defense world, taking a look at some what's in the news, looking at the defense budget and things of that nature coming onto everyone's radar. So there'll be much more current events focused and I'll have a rotating list of guests joining me to help me through with the analysis each particular episode. Our first episode for subscribers is going to be next week. Now, the great thing about this is that for the first couple months here, all subscriber episodes are free for everyone. So we want you to listen in and if you want to participate, we can actually have you also participate in the recording as an audience member. You're muted and so forth. But uh, look crows.org for more information on the link to join the recording that will be taking place next Tuesday, January 23rd. But we'll be recording that day and releasing the next day on the 24th. Again, these early episodes for the subscriptions are free to everyone so that you can see if this is what you want. If you do want to become a subscriber, it's great news. If you're an AOC member, subscription is free. It's part of your member benefit. So if you're not an AOC member, look into becoming a member today and you get a free subscription. If you're not an AOC member, you can still then subscribe for a low cost of $2.99 a month. So it's a great deal. Uh, It gives us a lot more opportunity to come to you and and talk about a, a 
larger range of issues, including getting into more current events. And so for subscribers, we'll be basically coming to you every single week with new content. Our first episode next week is going to be recorded. I'm going to have John Knowles, editor-in-chief of Journal Electromagnetic Dominance, AOC's JED publication, as well as Matt Thompson, AOC's senior analyst. And we'll sit down and talk about some of the current events. The other thing that I wanted to mention was that here at From the Crow's Nest, you know, it's our goal to bring you current content, up-to-date, kind of what's happening in the world of EW around the world, track current events, how it's affecting our community, how it's affecting the warfighter. We've had a lot of episodes talking about the war in Ukraine and and how EW is, is, is being used in that fight. As many of you know, obviously, there's a terrible war going on in the Middle East and, you know, ultimately do want to bring you the best information possible. But given the nature of this conflict, and really just the complexities, not to mention the fact that, you know, as AOC being a global community, we have members and industry partners around the world representing various sides of the conflict here at From the Crow's Nest, abstain from talking about that situation directly. If there is anything in particular that's especially relevant to the global EW community that we feel here at From the Crow's Nest our listeners need to know. We'll do our best to bring that to you. But I know that many people listen to the show for current events, but I wanted to let you know that, you know, it's it's not a, a situation that we feel comfortable with talking about on a episode by episode basis. So with that with disclaimer, I wanted to kind of bring that to everyone's awareness so that if you're looking for the latest update on what's going on, you probably won't hear from the crow's nest. If that changes in the future, we'll certainly let you know. So my guest today, again, is Jared Holcomb. He is a senior research analyst with Southwest Research Institute, also known as SWERI. Jared, thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Ken. I'm happy to be here. Well, you, you get the honor of being our first episode out of the gates here in 2024. So really, thank you for uh, taking time to join me here as the, you know, the, the rush of the new year is, all, is on everybody. So um, I know it's a busy time, uh, but I do appreciate you taking time to, uh, to join me. I think we first met, I guess, a few months ago when I was down there. We were uh, for the uh, 350th uh, Spectrum Warfare Wing Detachment Ceremony. I think it was the first time I met you in person. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been familiar with you, obviously, through AOC for, for last year with the Future Five and so forth. When we talked, you had mentioned this, uh, being on the show, when we were trying to identify a topic, it was about let's, let's discuss pushing the boundaries on wideband. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So, um, you know, I want to to begin to bring our listeners kind of up to speed here on what we mean when we talk about pushing boundaries of wideband, I think it's best to kind of start at the beginning here and talk a little bit about when we say wideband, you know, what are we talking about? And also how does it apply to certain uh, capabilities that we're putting out in the field, such as ELIN and, and SIGIN? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent clarification point there just to kind of introduce the topic. So what do we mean by wideband? So typically, whenever someone says wideband, they're talking about instantaneous bandwidth. So how much of the spectrum can you see at one get moment in time? Typical older receiver architectures, they typically go, well, they'll look around in the environment. So they're not staring at the, the full environment uh, at, at the same time, but they'll just take little, little snapshots. And... What we're seeing now is that threats are moving around the entire spectrum. 
right now. They can, they can move anywhere. And we have to be able to look at that whole spectrum at the same time in order to fully characterize these threats. Because then the, the, the snapshots that are taken by these, some of the older technologies are going to miss them or is, and, and I would imagine that would be susceptible to like, when you're talking about threats, being able to move around like frequency hopping and moving around to different places where those snapshots are going to miss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like a good analogy that I often give is like, a, you, you've seen the, like the Where's Waldo pictures, you know, they're little puzzles, whatever. You got a little picture of a guy on there. There's buildings, there's hundreds of other people that are drawn on there. It's, it's like that big picture there. That's the entire spectrum that we're trying to look at. And we're trying to find Where's Waldo. So it's going to be a lot faster if we have that whole picture there, rather than if we just get the upper right-hand corner, then the upper left-hand corner, and the bottom right-hand corner, and stuff like that. If we look at the whole thing simultaneously, we, it's a lot easier for us to narrow down on, oh, there's Waldo, there's the, there's the guy that I'm looking for, or there's something of interest right there. When you're using wideband technology, I would imagine then then you're talking about much larger data sets that you're collecting at any one given time versus... Uh, some of the more narrow kind of the focused or jumping around type snapshot data collections that you, some of the legacy systems have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you bring up one of the big challenges of going wideband is, is like, okay, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're used to dealing with kind of bandwidths in the hundreds of megahertz, maybe one, one or two gigahertz range of, it's like, okay, well, I have this much data process and it's easy to process. There's not as much there. But when you talk about going wideband, all of a sudden there's all these other bands that you have to worry about. There's all these other signals that are in the environment that aren't the ones that you're looking for or interested in. And you have to um, filter through all of those in order to get to the meat of what you're actually looking for. So the amount of data, the, the number crunching and all that stuff has to be increased. And a lot of systems would struggle, a lot of existing systems would struggle if they had to do all of that simultaneously. And, and so how does that impact then the mission sets of like ELINT and SIGINT, electronic intelligence, signals intelligence, and how are they using Y-band today? And how has that grown from how those missions were conducted using legacy technology? Yeah, absolutely. Using legacy technology, there was a sense of, okay, we needed instantaneous bandwidth, but because of technology limitations at the time, it was constrained. It's like, okay, this is so much we can do. So the way that they solved that previously is what they would do is they would they would scan around and be like, okay, we're going to look at this section, and then we're going to look at this section, and then we're going to look at this section. And based on based on the mission, they're like, okay, this is kind of what we're expecting in this mission. So I know how to smartly look at those sections in order to optimize my chances of actually seeing what I need to see. So the way that they are moving is they're like, okay, we've done this scanning thing before, but these, the, the pulse widths and um, all the signal characteristics that we're interested in, some of these threats, they don't show up that often and they're, they're moving around. We already talked about frequency hopping. So if they don't show up that often and I'm scanning around and all of a sudden it misses in one, one of my scanning intervals and I don't see it whenever I'm supposed to see it, then I'm going to have to wait a whole nother interval in order for me to see it. So I can't, I can't detect it that quickly. So, so it leaves it a little bit to chance uh, as well. Yeah. And, and since they're not there that often, you know, we're in scary times now where threats are, you, you get hit by one pulse and they've seen you. 
So it's, you know, it's extremely important for the warfighter to be able to detect that pulse and, and know that, that there's a threat out there uh, for the warfighter to, to be able to start actively jamming it. When you're talking about, you know, the, the instantaneous bandwidth and the range of frequencies that you're covering, how is that impacted by the, uh, I guess I'd say like the total amount of time that you are able to cover that range of frequency? You're, you, can, you can cover that range, but for a period of time, is there an effort to try to cover it for a longer period of time? Or is there a way to measure the total amount of time that you can receive in that, in that frequency? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, right now, thankfully, tech, technology has moved to a point now of where we're looking at massive chunks of the, of, this, of the known spectrum all simultaneously. And so I'm just going back to my Where's Waldo example. You know, if let's just say that I'm throwing out some numbers here, but we, we looked at the upper right hand corner for, you know, like 200 milliseconds or we'll just say a second. Right. We looked at the upper right hand corner for a second and be like, OK, Waldo's not in that corner. Okay, the next second we we did that, we moved to the the other right hand corner and we looked at that for a second. It's okay, where's Waldo's not in that? Then we got to the, the bottom left hand corner and said, Oh, Waldo's in that. All of a sudden, you know, that that took us essentially two seconds to be able to even see Waldo. But we're at the point now to where we can we can start looking at much larger sections. So let's just say now we can start looking at the at the top half of the Waldo section and be like, okay, it took me a second to go through that. Now let's go down. Okay, now I've just reduced the time that it took me to see that threat in half. So the time it takes to actually detect the signals is getting much, much lower because we were able to see much more of the spectrum to be able to identify that. And because we have that instantaneous bandwidth in order to see that. And, and so with the rapid pace of you know, threat technology out there that's driving a lot of this need to go wideband, it would seem that the biggest push in response from us is, you know, what, when we talk about having some open system technology and, so that we can integrate next generation capabilities into existing systems and continually develop them to face emerging th- or uh, developing threats. Could you talk a little bit about how open systems architectures are changing the way that we think about ELIN and SIGIN as it pertains to wideband? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's an area that I'm uh, that Southwest in particular is extremely involved in. We're all for um, this open system movement, primarily because you know it, it brings such a huge benefit to the warfighter. All of a sudden, taking these you know systems that would take years to upgrade or even change just for this one specific mission, all of a sudden you have a plug and play type receiver card or um, e-link card or whatever your mission that the warfighter is trying to solve is. And you say, hey, look, I need this specific card set for for this mission that I'm trying to solve. It's the same thing with e-link. So if there's a certain frequency range that a e-link mission is trying to go after, but your current card set doesn't have a great processing structure to either detect, identify, Maybe you're going into something with uh, cognitive radars or things like that, and your current current ones are primarily focused on legacy threats. You can pull out pull out that existing card, put in whatever vendor developed cognitive detector is, and you plug that card in. All of a sudden, you're up and ready to go. You're moving along with with the rapidly changing threats. 
Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So with, with open systems, I mean, there's a lot of movements, a lot of kind of uh, champions out there in terms of structure of how the services are approaching open systems. You have SOSA, you have CMOS, Mora, uh, uh, and and I can't remember all, what all the acronyms stand for, but they're all open systems architectures. And one of the things that always seems challenging to me when trying to grasp, you know, new technology is we always talk about, well, we need a certain capability out there. We need a, a, a new system or a new technology to accomplish that. And then once we start to develop that, that system becomes a system of systems. And it's just another way of saying we need to be attaching a multiple things into one product 
to accomplish it. And so when we talk about open systems now, you know, like we talk about open systems technology, being able to plug and play, but then we start to hear this thing that there's a suite of standards. There's not just one standard, there's a suite of standards, which means in, when I hear that, I hear that there's not a standard. So, so as it pertains to open systems, I mean, we, I know we have, you know, SOSA, Mora, CMOS, and, and I can't really remember how, what each of those acronyms stand for, but they basically align relatively with different services and so forth. When we talk about open systems standards and, and trying to have capability development that is a, much more open and able to have plug and play, how do those standard structures of SOSA, CMOS, and so forth, how do they work together to accomplish this? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a really great question. And it's a really hard problem to solve because, you know, you get, you get all these different vendors in a room and they're all going to be fighting for this is the way that we do it. And so everyone else should do it. And they're all saying that same thing, but they've come to different conclusions. So how they all work together is that they've come up with a common kind of backbone, if, if, if you will, that a lot of these different standards use. So the one that I'm f most familiar with is, is, is SOSA. So, you know, SOSA uses, uses Mora, uses some of the, the big iron framework. CMOS is kind of like an implementation of, of SOSA itself. So you have this kind of SOSA backbone, if you will. And then there's, there's something that not a lot of people like to talk about in open system architectures, but there is an integration period, right? So there are things that absolutely you, you use in the standard. And then there, there are things that, that you do slightly differently. And, and those, those are generally um, good things, right? You know, otherwise we'd all have the same product and how, you know, the government would just choose, oh, whatever, whatever the cheapest of this box is, it does, it does the same thing. Well, you, you, you want some, some different features and stuff like that in order to differentiate yourself to be better for the warfighter. So, but as long as you follow that, that backbone, that integration cost is extremely minimal. So that's, that's how kind of how all the different standards play together is that they all kind of follow that, that common backbone and, uh, and, and utilize each other, pull from each other. But as long as they're on that common backbone, then that integration costs of translating from one slightly different standard to another is very, very minimal. And, and in the past, a lot of developers would have to recreate a new backbone to integrate their capability into. Exactly, exactly. Going back and taking that back into Elin and Sigan, we're talking about rapidly evolving threats, rapidly counter, being able to counter those threats, really almost left of launch as we're trying to collect intelligence, both electronic and signal intelligence, massive data sets. How much of a problem is it to take that data and have actionable intelligence, turn it into actionable intelligence that the, really helps the warfighter understand what the mission is and what they need to accomplish. Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent question. We you know we've already hit on it. it it's ex extremely difficult to, to process that much data and go through that much data in order to pull out what actually is relevant information. But there are a lot of new technologies, new algorithm developments that are really being utilized. And one of the huge ones is uh, machine learning. Machine learning AI are huge at pulling out the things that those patterns that you find um, necessary and relevant information that should be brought to the forefront um, for the warfighter so that they can make actionable decisions based off of that intelligence. 
Could you give an example of how machine learning applications are changing the, the processing for ELIN, you know, in terms of faster data from traditional methods? Could you could you spell that out a little bit more in terms of what is actually going on and where is it able to make a huge impact versus some of the older ways of of, of uh, analyzing the data? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what the, the one thing machine learning is really great at is um, pattern recognition. Uh, it can it can pull out patterns that that it mathematically figures out based off of uh, existing training data and stuff like that, that traditional methods would 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 be very, very comp- complicated to pull out. So a great example of that would be really, really complex, we'll say, you know, pulse repetition patterns in a particular threat, right? They can get pretty complicated. And in the world that we're in with these advanced threats being digital and, you know, software defined, they can they can change on the fly. Um, the other thing um, to point out too is that you know everyone's got war reserve modes. Uh, so day one of the of the war, you know we're going to be seeing things that we've never seen before, and training artificial intelligence to kind of predict. Okay, I've seen this pattern or something similar to it before, but it's not exactly what it what it was uh, when I, when I got trained. But I know it's basically this class of of threat gives that warfighter that advantage of being like, oh, I, I haven't quite seen this before, but I'm really, really confident that it's it's this type of threat that's that's similar to it. So I know how to counteract that. I know how I know how to somewhat defeat that now. So no matter how good your AI is, you're, you're still going to need a highly trained class of operators on the back end, making sure that they know what they're they're looking at in terms of being able to recognize what AI is telling them is out there. Yes, that, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the trust for AI, it's it's come a long way. But if I were to hand you a software module that you are going to risk your life on and immediately and say, hey, look, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's all numbers and, and stuff like that. It's all doing math in the background. You're probably not going to trust it right away. And so, you know, we, we've seen a lot of progress over the years for Air Force, all the different joint operations to adopt AI ML algorithms. But yeah, it's one thing to hand it to someone else that's going to be flying in, in that environment. And it's another thing to actually be flying in that environment with with these new algorithms. So I absolutely, I think in, in the very beginning, there it's going to be an operator being told by AI ML uh, hey, look, this is what I'm seeing. And then throughout this trust process, this relationship with an algorithm per se, you know, it'll eventually be go to a more autonomous solution. But in the beginning, absolutely, it's going to be an operator. We're titling this episode, uh, Pushing the Boundaries of Wideband EW. What does that mean to you? And why is it so important? So pushing the boundaries. So what we have right now is technology coming out that is pushing the boundaries of what we thought was even possible for instantaneous bandwidth, um, capturing instantaneous bandwidth, but it's still not good enough. We need to keep going because believe it or not, for an EW system, the threats are using the same technology to go even further, uh, even more wideband than we are right now. So if the threats are moving in that direction, we also need to be pushing it even more in that direction as well, because it, we're, we're running a race and, it, you know, we need to be two steps ahead, not just 
keeping pace with with them. We need we always need to be two steps ahead, especially when it comes to defense platforms. So, so can you give us a sense of of the gap um, in terms of uh, you know where we need to go um, to make sure that we are not just treading water on this or, or or keeping pace, but we're actually achieving an advantage. Yeah. So it's hard to come up with a ballpark of exactly where we need to go, but there are a lot of areas right now that we need to improve. So obviously the, the more instantaneous bandwidth that we can have, the better, but we're also pushing the boundaries of, okay, the frequency ranges that our threats are getting into. So getting even even higher frequency than we are right now is extremely important because threats are going there. Getting lower than what we've seen before, you know, getting even lower frequencies than we've seen before on, on threats is extremely important as well. So going both both directions on that way. But there's also a fundamental gap in, I guess, the, the processing uh, ability as well. So, you know, these instantaneous bandwidths, you know, we, we see like such as the direct RF on uh, ADCs and digital systems now, you know, they're up to 16, 18 gigahertz instantaneous bandwidth. Now it's, it's kind of the, the best, that, um, best that you can get, which is, which is incredible. You know, no one's been able to do that before, but then there's always the, the piece of, it's like, okay, now that we have that much data, how do we process that all? So coming up with, with new innovative ways to process that much information is another huge gap that we need to continually be pushing um, there. And it's ex- extremely important that we come up with with solutions for that. So so as we're pushing for, as we're pushing the boundaries, per se, as, we're, as we're trying to uh, improve our ability to operate wideband, what are some of the responses or countermeasures you expect from a threat to use that would say, that would basically counter that effort to increase. I mean, you, you talk about going higher frequency, but where does it go from me? It's the known spectrum, or I should say the operate uh, the operationally relevant spectrum is a relatively finite set of frequencies. Yeah, it, it, we can go higher and we know that, but at what point, what are some of the things that you're seeing or you think, you know, adversaries would be, well, what is the next step in that evolution? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about going wideband, some of the other challenges associated with with going wideband is really you have all of a sudden you have 18 gigahertz, right? And you're also trying to see extremely low low powered signals, right? But you you have some really, really high powered signals that come up in that much wider, wider area. So there's a, there's a term in there um, called dynamic range. So it's you know, if I have this high power signal in the environment, how low can I see with that high power signal in the environment uh, inside of my instantaneous bandwidth? So, you know, some of the adversarial threats might be like, oh, hey, look, if I raise the power of this guy really, really high, and then I sneak in something else lower power that I'm actually using for processing, then that that could be a very potential way um, for someone to be to hide signals on top of higher higher power signals. And so that would be that would be a challenge to um, be able to detect and identify. So going back to the Where's Waldo analogy, you you might be able to say, okay, well, we can look at more of the picture at once, but they're going to find new ways to hide underneath the current design of whatever what whatever they're already putting out there in terms of signals. 
And then, you know, you start talking about, you know, this, this cognitive uh, approach here, and, you know, it's, it's also not just cognitive EW, it's also, you know, um, um, cognitive threats, you know, they're, they're going to be talking to, um, to other people in this communication realm of, Hey, look, it's like, I was like, I, I'm, I'm seeing this, uh, why don't you change this? And we'll, we'll try that to see if we can, we can try and defeat this cognitive EW threat as well. So, you know, it's both sides of the coin are, are trying these, um, these types of things and they're trying to defeat each other and whoever gets ahead, you know, is going, going to be, going to be the winner. Looking at it from a technologist perspective, though, you know, when you're talking about the data sets, a, the, the, the power of AI to analyze the data that's coming in, making it actionable, you know, covering wider range of uh, frequency ranges and so forth. Outside of just, you know, thinking, I'm thinking organizationally, process, leadership, what are some of the challenges that really kind of prevent this effort in terms of pushing boundaries? What are some of the obstacles that you run into that make it more difficult to push the boundaries that step outside of sim- simply being technologically able to do it? Yeah. So you're talking just like organizationally, like I, I really, you know, I, I really want to, you know, go research this, but I guess, uh, but, but, you know, there's this one roadblock in organizationally that's, that's, that's blocking me. Is that the question? Yeah, I mean, look, what can we do as an as a community to improve the our ability to push the boundaries, to make that effort more smooth, and to get the capability into the hands of the warfighter more quickly? Because I think uh, what I hear from you is that we have the technology to do this. We know we can do this. We have when we have the open system structure models that we can do use to do it. So, what do we actually need to succeed? Yeah, so I, I think that's a that's an excellent point. So the 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 things that kind of stop people when we well, specifically when we talk about next generation technology is really risk, right? It's like okay, next generation technology is not cheap. You know, it's it's going to be you know five, ten times more expensive than um, your existing systems, right? So there's there's one roadblock. There is okay, can upper management, higher leaders and, and the government be like, okay, yeah, th- this is, this is a lot more expensive. Is, is, is the risk worth it? Um, so having them to be able to say, no, um, we need to be pushing the boundaries at all times on this. This is, this is extremely important because it affects the lives of our warfighters. It's going to affect our strategy. It's going to do all the, all the really great things that we've, that we've talked about. So I'm willing to put my best foot forward, give enough funding to actually um, purchase enough enough of these systems, enough of this research equipment, all this stuff like that to actually say, yes, this is this is fantastic. And I'm going to put this in the hand of the warfighter. So that's that's a huge obstacle right there. Just just in general of talk about and trying to implement this next generation technology in in real time is just okay it's going to be expensive so if we can improve that at any point we always look for champions right a champion behind an idea that's like it's like okay i'm i'm putting both feet in i'm diving right in it's like this this is what we need this is what is going to be um really effective and uh, when it comes to wartime 
Thank you, Jerry. I mean, one of the great things about this topic, this is a subject area that I don't talk a lot. Obviously, I don't talk a lot about um, as not being a a technologist myself or an engineer. I want to make sure that, though, that I do it justice. You know, is there anything else that you think we need to be talking about? Anything left unsaid that you would like our listeners to know about this issue and the importance of it to the warfighter? I think there's there's one really important thing that I that I hear more and more often, and you know I talk to I talk to a lot of people about intelligence and other things like that, but here lately the more I guess what I'm hearing more of talking to people is oh yeah no even I I would rather just just give me something that jams everything right. Just give me something that that jams everything. I don't care what it is. Just give me something that that jams something because that's that's more important to them than a uh, an elent intelligence like um, um, solution. And what I think is so important, um, and it's kind of you know I, I get I get where they're coming from. You know, they're more operational side of things. But what I think that maybe some people might not understand quite thing is it's like okay to me we will either win or lose a battle on day one of the battle, on day one of the war. And that's going to be through how much information can we get on day one that will lead to future victories on day two and day three. And there, there's a, there's a history of this, you know, there's, you know, look at, look at Enigma and all the, all the intelligence gathering that that was able to give, give people. And we always say intelligence, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So elent intelligence is extremely important in, in this battle space and saying things like, okay, I would rather just have a jammer out there than uh, focus on elent systems or intelligence systems. Those things that I'm hearing more of, it's like, okay, intelligence might be the most important thing that you can get. So focusing on, on elent and that specific realm of things is, I think, extremely important and hasn't been getting a whole lot of attention, um, the, at least the attention that, that I think it, it deserves in this space. And the more intelligence that you can gather and analyze and, and operationalize before day one, then when day one happens and the adversary tries or implements things that look new, you have, you have a baseline to to measure it against in terms of what is actually going on instead of just being day one bombarded with new and serious threats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we you know we talked about war reserve modes and absolutely getting something before day one is always incredibly useful. It's, you know, invaluable. But I there are war reserve modes out there that we've probably will never see, especially in this software defined realm that things that things are changing on the fly. And so I have a feeling that day one of the war, we're going to be seeing all sorts of things that we had never thought of before or we did anything possible. So if, if what we can do on day one of the war will we'll ultimately decide our victory or loss. And, and along with the information piece of this is the cost side of it. The, the more intelligence you have, the more you know of your adversary before day one, the more stress you put on them before day one the higher cost for them as well. And that also affects their ability to, to be prepared on day one and to win. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's a, it's a huge deal on, on both sides. Anything that any little advantage is, is huge when it comes to this. Well, thank you, Jared, for taking time 
and happy new year to you. And I greatly appreciate you coming on from the Gross Nest here and having a discussion. Hope to have you back again real soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, I hope to be back. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Jared Holcomb from Sweary for joining me. Also, again, just a reminder that we are going to be launching our new subscription service next week for those who are interested in receiving more content through From the Crow's Nest podcast. Again, the first several subscriber episodes are free uh, to everyone. Um, but once we uh, activate that firewall, the only subscribers will be uh, AOC members, as well as those who subscribe individually to the show. You can learn more at crows.org for more information. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. Uh, That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTC and host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.